Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Case, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. This is a very, very special episode. I have with me Joe Schmid, and man, I don't know, it's, it's like f- maybe five times, maybe five or six times that he's been on. This is like a culmination, because he's we're, he's on to talk about his new book, Existential Inertia and Classical Theistic Proofs. I hope that's the title. Uh, I have a digital. Usually I like to, it's in my hand, but Joe's book is $1,000. No, it's not. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm uh, really excited to talk with him about this. It's a huge project, a huge work. Um, it's awesome. I'm, I'll save it for, for when, he, when, he, when we bring him in here. But um, before we jump in, thanks to everyone who's making this possible on Patreon. You guys are awesome. I seriously appreciate the support. Like, the lights are on because of you guys partially. Um, if you guys like this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can find the link in the description, wherever you're getting this podcast at. Seriously, huge. Appreciate it. That is where you can support me at. Please do that. You can also buy Parker's Pensy's merch from the merch store. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find that down here somewhere. If not uh, somewhere else, then look in the um, description. I'm struggling with my intro here. I'm all jazzed about Joe being on again. So let's just bring Joe in. We're going to talk about existential inertia, like what the heck is that? You'll see. Uh, and then we're going to talk about some theistic proofs. So stay tuned and keep watching. You'll be an expert in uh, classical theism and why you shouldn't believe in it, I guess, and uh, a bunch of arguments for God's existence. So without further ado, here's Joe. Joe, man, I'm pumped to, to be talking with you. Thanks for coming back on the show yet again. Yeah, thank you for having me. I am now... I think I'm rivaling Taylor Sear. I think I might be tied with him now. For yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll you see. have to be. You have to be. Yeah, you've been on a bunch, dude. Um, and people love hearing from you. Actually, we we split one of the episodes into two, so I think that counts as double. Ooh. So you might be beating. I think you're beating Taylor. Sorry, Taylor. Ooh. But come on soon again, <clears throat> dude. Um, okay, so I think I got the book title right. Is it Existential Inertia and Classical Theistic Proofs? Yes, it is. So this there is just my little soft cover. I don't even have my author copies yet. Those are, I believe, in the mail. Nice. Uh, but yeah, those are those are going to be the nice hard cover. This yeah. is the soft cover. It has a little thing on the bottom. That's not in the actual cover. But yeah, Existential Inertia and Classical Theistic Proofs that I co-authored with uh, Dr. Daniel J. Linford. Dude, so awesome. Such a huge accomplishment, man. That's awesome. Um, real quick, like, why why this book? Why now? And let's start with that. Yeah, like why why write this book now, I guess? Yeah, so there are probably dozens of reasons for why I wrote the book and wrote it with my co-author. The first, I'll just give five, I think. Uh, one of them is that there's a huge need for this book uh, at this time right now. Um, like there's just a huge scholarly need for it. The, as we emphasize at multiple places in the book, there is a, just a big darth, a big absence of literature on um, existential inertia, on Phaser's proofs in particular, or, you know, 30 billion air quotes around proofs, but uh, Phaser's arguments um, and uh, lots of the issues that, that we cover, right? So, I mean, in terms of papers that have been explicitly published on existential inertia, you could probably count them on one or two hands. So this represents the first book length treatment of existential inertia uh, that exists. So, yeah, there's just a huge scholarly need for it. Yeah. And um, there's also a huge scholarly need for Phaser's proofs. The only critical appraisals that exist currently of any of Phaser's five proofs are 
me and Graham Oppie, we, we have only the only ones who have been publishing on it. Yeah. Uh, and we've only focused on stage one of one of the proofs, which is the <laughs> Aristotelian proof. So right. this goes through, systematically goes through all five of them and goes through lots of different arguments as well, like the Deante argument um, from Aquinas, the first way from Aquinas, uh, the argument for God from logic from uh, Anderson and Welty and Proust and Rasmussen and, uh, and lots of stuff. So, so yeah, there's just a huge need for it. <laughs> That's the first thing, the most the most important reason. I guess the second reason is just, um, I mean, you know, I definitely think it'll serve people who are interested in these sorts of debates about God's existence, God's nature, models of God, um, how God relates to the world, why things persist, why are there composite things, why are there contingent things, why are there changing things? Lots of these really fundamental questions in metaphysics, philosophy of religion, philosophy of time, etc. Yeah. I guess a third reason is, um, much of my research and my papers have been kind of thematically united, uh, and so they naturally lend themselves to a book-length project. Uh, they've been united around kind of a core of issues relating to persistence, uh, what explains persistence, classical theism, divine simplicity, arguments for and against the classical theistic God's existence, etc. So I found a natural home for like two or three of my articles in here. Um, I think it's just two of them, and then some snippets from another one. So that's another thing. It's just kind of like a culmination of my research yeah. over the past um, several years. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And then I guess a fourth thing is that, I mean, hey, it helps my grad school applications. Uh, hopefully it'll help when uh, I eventually am seeking a job in philosophy. I mean, I know the job market there is atrocious, so don't get me wrong. I've, <laughs> yeah. I've got backup plans. That's good. <laughs> but, yeah. but a published book will hopefully at least help a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and then fifthly and finally, uh, I, I think it's a nice way to combat the kind of triumphalism and chest thumping and condescension and tribalism that spews forth from some people. So um, that's that's kind of a fifth reason. Yeah. Just uh, a lot of people on the internet uh, have employed Phaser's book and used it to call people irrational, calling uh, the arguments insuperable or irrefutable demonstrations, saying that atheists aren't part of the real debate, uh, etc. So like these sorts of things, um, uh, you know, like Phaser ended his book with quod erad demonstrandum, which is like how you end like a geometric proof, yeah. which suggests that these are like on epistemic par with geometric proofs. <laughs> So, um, yeah, just combating a lot of this kind of language of proof and demonstrate and you're irrational. You know, I'm not, I'm not attributing all this to, to Phaser, but, right, you know, right. a lot of people on the Internet uh, like to wield the Phaser's proofs in order to bash people on the head, in order to chest thump, etc. So it's kind of combating that toxicity and arrogance and condescension and tribalism um, that issues forth from certain Internet spheres. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah, we had a good laugh about the insuperable stuff before. Is, <laughs> yeah, last time. Which is always. Fun. Phaser describes one of his some of his arguments as insuperable. Yeah. Oh man. 
And and I you know an open invitation to uh, to him, Doctor Fazer, to come on, man. I, I I'd love to talk with you. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, dude, I I really appreciate this work um, for for a lot of different reasons. But like, hey, if you're a not if you're not a classical theist, this can bolster you as well. Like it's it's yeah. for everyone. And if you are a classical exactly. theist, like, man, I just think that you need to read this kind of work to see like what are the arguments against it and how will this like shape or reshape or what what kind of work do i have to do in order to explicate my view mm-hmm. um i yeah i i run in like you know theologian and philosopher circles and sometimes when my theologian friends just kind of put forward classical theism um without argument it's like well you know that there's like pretty like like strong arguments against those like you can't just say that you know like in mm-hmm. i if you if you come with some kind of reason and you say like well okay here's why and here's this and here's that that's cool too like do that sure but if you're just like that's just the way it is that's just christianity it's like that's frustrating man there's a lot of stuff mm-hmm. that you need to there's a lot of work that you need to do to catch up so yeah, i'm well i just want to briefly comment on that yeah. um like this book is going to be of serious interest to non-classical theists so yeah. i'm not just talking about people who are like not classical theists i'm talking about non-classical theists who right. are indeed theists but maybe they don't accept this uber high octane Thomistic divine simplicity because right. after all that's what at least a, a large number of phasers proofs are trying to get at and so theists themselves need to contend who, who don't accept classical theism or mm-hmm. don't accept uh, phasers version of it they need to they themselves need to contend with these arguments right yeah. so it's not like uh, this is a book that's only um you know, of interest to atheists or, you know, things like that. Like, even non-classical theists need to have something to say in response to these arguments. Like, these arguments represent arguments even against their their own view. It's not yeah. like they're united behind this sort of natural theological project because yeah. it directly contradicts their their model and their view of God. Right, right. And and for me, um, <clears throat> as my audience knows, like, I, I would love to be able to hold on to, to like, simplicity, for instance, just because of the historical significance uh, that's been given. But to me, it's like this seems more like a liability than like a tool. Like people be like, yo, it's a, it's a great tool. I don't see it. I see it as a total liability. Um, but like your criticism, part of your criticism of the uh, conceptualist proof, uh, the the Augustinian proof is like, hey, look, this this and simplicity do not go together. And for me, I'm like, yeah, OK, so like simplicity is out and I can let's see if I can run this because you have a specific specific target in mind, which is Ed Phaser, Right. So. Mm-hmm. Well, um, classical theists as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but classical theists, likewise, Ed Fazer is not the stand-in for all classical theism, right? That like, is very true. I think that's another another point to to make, where it's like, yeah, he's a good philosopher, but like, if you you, you can speak for yourself too, if you're a classical theist, you know, like maybe find your own way through here, um, mm-hmm. if you can. So, I just like it, man. I, I like the whole project. I'm excited for it. Um, before we jump into some of the like the nitty gritty, can you tell us? Um, uh a little bit about like your co-author because a lot of people who know you know you've been working on this and then you see your co-author and like oh where'd this come from so can you tell us a little bit about that yeah so um my co-author is dr daniel j linford uh he just received his phd in philosophy from purdue university in early june so yeah he's a very recent graduate he did his dissertation which is actually freely available online it is Mm -hmm. superb um it is called Cosmic Skepticism in the Beginning of the Universe. So he did it in kind of the intersection between philosophy of religion and philosophy of physics. Mm. So he is huge in philosophy of physics, in space-time, philosophy of science, uh, philosophy of math, 
and also philosophy of religion mm. and he, the, just the intersection of all of these together and metaphysics and philosophy of time. So he brings a lot of that to the plate. And um, what he allows is kind of updating a lot of the existential inertia and classical theistic proof literature and updating that in terms of what does all of this look like in accordance with our best scientific theories that, that we currently accept? Like, mm. how does this look with our findings of relativity theory and the relativity of simultaneity and, you know, these sorts of things? How does all that look? Um, we talk about simultaneous causation in here, which has a lot to do with uh, interpretations of relativity and, um, you know, interpretations of Feynman diagrams and other sorts of things. Mm. So he brings a lot of um, technical sophistication with respect to philosophy of physics in, in, the, in the book. Uh, and he also um, brings a lot of insights into um, like a temporal wave function monism as an alternative, timeless, foundational, non-theistic reality yeah. uh, that has to do with a gap problem. Uh, so yeah, he 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 brings a lot of that to the to the table. So a big shout out to Daniel and um, and yeah, uh, so yeah, that that dissertation sounds awesome. I'm gonna have to check that out. Maybe I can it's get him on the pod. Just yeah. a, a warning. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, okay, dude. You've, so I mean, it's right in the book title, existential inertia, and I think a lot of my audience will not know what the heck that is. So can you give us maybe like a broad scope and then we can dive in deeper into the details of existential inertia? Yeah, so I guess we can kind of situate where existential inertia is coming into the dialectic and then I will talk about what it is. So the broad dialectic in this book, there are, there are other kind of dialectics, the dialectical contexts, but one of them is what we call persistence arguments. Persistence arguments say something like, there are entities of a given kind, like maybe changeable entities or composite entities or entities in which essence and existence are distinct or contingent entities. So they're, they're, they're entities of a given kind. That's kind of like a first premise in persistence arguments. The second premise in persistence arguments say, hey, entities of that kind require a sustaining cause or a conserving cause that keeps them in being at any moment at which they exist. So entities that are changeable or composite or contingent or in which essence and existence are distinct, they require some kind of sustenance or conservation from without in order to exist at any moment. And then the third premise basically says, well, hey, if each of these things requires a sustaining cause, uh, well, then uh, what about that sustaining cause? Is that a, of the same kind as these things are? Mm. If so, then it requires a sustaining cause. And is that sustaining cause of the same kind? Well, then that would then also require a sustaining cause. And what they say is that this cannot proceed to infinity, right? You can't have, so they say, you can't have an infinite chain, infinitely descending chain with no primary or foundational member that can bestow the relevant uh, causal power, or in this case, bestow existence to the rest of the chain. Yeah. And so we get that there's a primary or foundational member of this chain. And it's primary in the sense of it doesn't have a, a further sustaining cause. And since every entity of kind K that we were just talking about, we can let that kind be contingent or changeable or whatever. Since every entity of that kind requires a sustaining cause and this entity doesn't have a sustaining cause, it falls that this entity is not of that kind. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to be changeable or it's not going to be composite or it's not going to be contingent, etc. So then they get to this unchangeable, simple first cause, uh, etc. And then you can start to run stage two and things like that. That's a very broad brushstrokes of what persistence arguments are. Yeah. And that's where kind of existential inertia comes in. It's saying, well, hold on a second. Let's not be so quick to demand an external sustaining cause of things as existence. Why think that? 
Why can't things just persist in existence without requiring or without even having some kind of external sustaining cause? Why, why can't that be the case? What's so bad about that? It's similar to how, you know, if you um, shoot a particle in like uh, in, in a room or whatever, the particle is just going to maintain its rectilinear motion uh, unless it's obstructed by something. Right. It doesn't need some kind of continual impetus to kind of keep it going. No, it's just, it just uh, you know, it's called spatial inertia or mechanical inertia. If that's the case in, in the case of spatial motion, why can't it be the case for, for existence? So that's a basic idea of existential inertia. Uh, I guess a little bit more precise way of putting it is temporal concrete objects. So concrete objects are just like, you know, individuals or substances or concrete particulars. So like you or me or tables or chairs or trees or particles or platypuses or even yeah. God or Cartesian egos. Yeah. Uh, so temporal, that means they're in, they exist within time. They undergo succession. So we're talking about temporal concrete objects. So existential inertia says that temporal concrete objects, at least some of them, maybe all of them, but at least some of them mm -hmm. persist in existence in the absence of a continuously concurrent sustaining cause that keeps them in existence from without. And in the absence, of course, of like sufficiently destructive factors. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So things persist unless they're positively destroyed by some sort of a, by something either within them or outside of them. Uh, and they also persist without being continuously sustained by an external sustaining cause that's outside of them and that continuously keeps them in being. So that's the basic idea of existential inertia. And you can see how that targets persistence arguments, uh, given the way that I laid them out earlier. So yeah, yeah that's a basic thesis. Yeah, that, I mean, that's super helpful. Um, the, the destructing forces, like, I wonder if, the, if someone in the audience might just be like, well, what, what about like entropy? Isn't entropy like a universal, like, destructive force? Isn't that just a, like... Have you thought about that? Is that is that a is that an appropriate uh, question? I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. We actually talk about that a little bit in um, in one of the paragraphs. I mean, yeah, I mean, existential inertia is perfectly cool with entropy. That just means that yeah, there is a destructive force that's uh, often you know acting on things, and you know, it's not always a sufficiently destructive causal force. Right. I mean, after all, like. I can punch you. There's a sense in which that's a destructive force. Like if I did it more and more and more often, then then you you die. So uh, yeah. it's like a partial. It's like a partial cause of it, yeah. uh, and it's not by itself sufficient for it. And so entropy, whenever it's acting on things like you and me right now, it's not it's not a sufficiently destructive cause. But you know, it's it's a causal vector that's kind of pushing us towards that way. But of yeah. course, um, it's not it's not sufficient for it. So and it's not um, like that's a big idea. Yeah, I guess we don't need to like reify it or anything. Like entropy is like. A thing it's like a concrete entity out there either it's like it's just like a fill in the blank type thing for any anything that i guess i don't know what entropy is yeah i mean i think it's like facts about statistical mechanics and um the uh distribution of like particles and their energies within systems or something yeah. you know yeah. um and so um yeah, I mean, again, I don't really see how, I mean, it's an interesting thought because yeah. it's like sort of a destructive factor. Um, but again, that's really just going to amount to certain particles having certain properties in our environment as well as within us that um, undergo certain processes. Yeah. And uh, those can, when they're sufficient, they can cause us to cease to exist. But um, yeah, but yeah they're, not, they're not always going to be sufficient. And when they're not sufficient, the thing is going to persist in the absence of external sustenance. Yeah. So um, uh, when it comes to a thing persisting, um, do you do you only need one? Like um, you, you talk about it in the book, you know, you you um, are, are more precise. You say like, yeah, like uh, not all things, but at least some things, at least some concrete objects uh, persist. Like all you need is one for for the argument to go through, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, all you would need, yes, all you need is one for our existential inertia thesis, as they call it, or EIT. That's the kind of precise way to, to put the thesis. Uh, all, you, all you would need is one temporal concrete object that behaves in this manner, that, as we call it, inertially persists. Yeah. So, yeah, like if there's a temporal God, for instance, uh, that's going to satisfy this because God persists without being sustained in existence from without and also in the absence of sufficiently destructive factors, of course. So uh, that's kind of trivial. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, even if there's a temporal God, like that's perfectly compatible with existential inertia. And that's also compatible with this temporal God sustaining every other temporal concrete object, right? Because, again, our existential inertia thesis only quantifies over uh, temporal concrete objects or some subset thereof. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's compatible with that. Um, I mean, you might think that uh, there, there are different views here. Some people think that, yeah, I mean, basically every temporal concrete object is going to behave in this way. Um, and other people who are... Um, less inclined to that are going to think differently. Yeah. So uh, another thing I wanted to, to broach for the audience um, is in persistent com persistence conversations, sometimes there's a debate over like perdurantism and endurantism. And um, yeah, you're like, hey, either one works with existential inertia. Can you explain that a little bit more? Maybe just say like a, a word about per and endurantisms. Yeah. So endurantists think that objects persist by being wully located at the moments at which they exist or being wholly present to mm -hmm. each moment at which they exist. So um, you and I are here right now that the endurantist says that like the whole of us, like the entirety of us as concrete objects are present here right now. And then at the next moment, the whole entirety of us is present there at that moment. And then at the next moment, the whole entirety of us is then present at that moment. Mm -hmm. So yeah, endurantists say that things persist by being wholly present or existing as a whole at the respective moments at which they exist, at each of the respective moments at which they exist. By contrast, perdurantists say, uh, no, <laughs> that's not the case. You do not <laughs> exist. You are not wholly present at each of the moments at which you exist. Instead, uh, there's something like temporal parts. So you persist by having parts at each of these times. So you are not talking to the whole of Joe right now. You're just talking to a temporal part of Joe, or maybe it's a temporal phase of Joe. And I am just this four-dimensional space-time worms strung yeah. out through space-time. Uh, I think, uh, who is it? Catherine Rogers likes to call them space-time ribbons because worms is worms. a bit distasteful right. unless you're a Calvinist. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so yeah, we're, we're space-time ribbons. We, as a whole, we are those like space-time salamis, if you want to think about it like that. Yeah. So um, we do not persist by being wholly present at each of the moments at which we exist. Uh, instead, we're only partly present there. It's a part of us that's there. Yeah. We are the four-dimensional objects that are strung out or extended through space-time. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, Joe, just just like, dude, this is not part of the book or anything. But do you, do you come down on that? I would I would assume that you're probably a perdurantist. But so I, yeah. So uh, <laughs> I used to be, I used to be much more in favor of presentism and endurantism together. Mm -hmm. Now I'm kind of agnostic. Uh, I've been talking with Daniel a lot. And, That's a surprise you know, that you're agnostic yeah. on something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. These debates are in, in, immensely complex. And, right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I uh, I'm starting to think that I'm starting to come around to the view that yeah, relativity really does kind of push us toward. I know. I mean, it won't strictly entail it, but it it really does kind of push us toward a four dimensionalist view, uh, and the consequent upon which I would argue is something like uh, perdurantism. Yeah. So. 
I'm still agnostic on it, uh, but my views are kind of in flux. And they've been, I mean, this is a kind of a recent development. So oh, cool. people who have been following me for a long time know that I used to be, I used to call myself a lukewarm presentist, but now I just don't really know anymore. Yeah. Well, so I'm with you on that, man. It's like, it's super tough. And you speak to someone who's convinced, more convinced than one side or the other. No one's really convinced, but like, and they'll give you amazing arguments. You're like, dang it, dude. Don't, I don't even want to hear it anymore. Like, I don't <laughs> want to change my mind anymore. But no matter what, either both of you are crazy. Like, I'm wholly here. But then, like, that moment passed. And now I'm that just gone. And you have different gone. properties, right? You have different properties now yeah. than you did then. It's yeah. like, how are you with the exact? But, the, like, the space-time <laughs> thing, the space-time ribbon, it, with the nice way of saying it, is so weird too it's like no but i am here what are you talking about it's like (laughs) both of them are so crazy man yeah metaphysics is hard and crazy it's like the more you study it you're like okay there's a range of views on this question you have to take one of them because it's like other but like oh my gosh they're all they all have so many weird counter like counterintuitive consequences and you're like oh boy yeah and the world's just weird like no matter what comes out unless there's another option that's not weird which it doesn't seem i don't see it yet like they're all super weird so no matter what you say like the world is a weird place which i kind of like i kind of go in for that um well so okay let's get back to um some existential inertia stuff do you um that to, to me like it popped up on my radar a couple years back from you and then some debates back and forth some papers flying around but like, where, where did this, do you know where this came from? Like who, who started this kind of stuff? Do you know? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas city, go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're asking someone who likes analytic philosophy about about history. I thought you might know. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, okay. So, you know, debates like this kind of goes back to like the pre-Socratic atomists. So like they thought that, um, you know, like the world is fundamentally composed of these indestructible atoms and they are yeah like little bb atoms almost indestructible atoms and they are the fundamental things of reality they are temporal they persist they are not sustained or you know conserved by anything more fundamental than them uh and they go like they go on to constitute and in some manner explain the diversity of composite things around us and they swerve and that's why we get free will and stuff and that's great (laughs) yeah exactly so the pre-socratic atomists were kind of the first existential inertialists i want to emphasize for the audience right like i'm not an atomist I don't accept these sorts of pre-Socratic views. Uh, existential nurse is not tied to these sorts of things. That's just one way to be an existential nurse. So you could also be a Bible-thumping Christian and accept existential nurse. You can believe in a temporal God. You could be a panentheist, a neoclassical theist, etc. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, or you could be like a neo-Aristotelian. You can have basically any, almost any metaphysical view of, you know, the fundamental structure of reality. Um, almost any, of course. Um, but, but yeah, so it was, it kind of goes back to the pre-Socratic atomists and, you know, this, this is, the view is refined, taken up in different ways, you know, the medieval, uh, not medieval, like the early modern, like atheist philosophers, like, um, de Holbach and I'm probably pronouncing these terribly and, uh, that's uh, fine. Montaigne. You're on, Par- you're on Parker's Pensies, man. You're, you're good. <laughs> yeah. 
I think Monta Montaigne or whatever his person's name is. Sorry, I, I don't know philosophy. I don't know history. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I think they tried to, you know, ascribe to like the universe that they argue that we can basically ascribe to the universe a lot of the attributes that um, theists traditionally argued applied to God. And, you know, they got around cosmological arguments like that. And so they also, a lot of them held that like either the universe or certain fundamental constituents thereof ha uh, persist inertially. Um, like Leibniz has this interesting idea of like, was it Leibniz? I think there was this like this thing called like, the, it was either Leibniz or Spinoza. I'm revealing my ignorance here. Mm -hmm. um, there's like this doctrine of striving or something. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it, it's almost like things are in some manner continually, like they strive for existence and they strive for persistence or something. And they like, in some manner, they explain their own persistence. So that's almost like another existential inertialist view, or at least, you know, you could develop one on the basis of that. It's kind of like the, the forerunner to, the, to something. Yeah. I wonder if that's like Leibniz, Leibniz's monadology, monadology or something. Sounds like, yeah, a, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know either. I, I, I think, and then more recently it kind of comes up in Mortimer Adler in his 1980 book. He talked about it as a, you know, one way of responding to certain traditional cosmological arguments that rely on sustaining causation. And then did he, kind of, did he use that word? Do you know, did he use existential? As far energy? as I know, he is the first person to use that term in, the, in, in every, anywhere. Yeah. That's amazing. Is, I didn't, I didn't yeah. know that you would know Mortimer Adler cause he's, he was kind of like a popular, you know, philosopher type dude. That's yeah. really cool. He's like one of my favorite people. I love Mortimer Adler. Really? This, this yeah. set back here is all, Mortimer Adler's like collection of the great works. Oh my of, gosh! I love this guy, man. He's awesome. That's so cool that I started, or that he like coined, maybe coined it. I don't know, but at least I, I'm, in, I'm I'm pretty confident that he's the first person to to coin the term. That's insane. That's so cool. Okay. But yeah, and then and then you know it doesn't really get talked about much, and then it's picked up by uh, John Bodwin, and he writes a paper on it, and he argues that like existential inertia is definitely better than uh, the, these sorts of divine conservation views, yeah. and then. Fraser responds to Bodwin, and then you get a little bit more of a proliferation of, of papers on the basis of that exchange. And mm. that's kind of been continuing up till now. Every now and every now and then I'll find like a really weird dissertation that like mentions something like existential notion, like one paragraph. And yeah, <laughs> it, it's really interesting. And they'll call it like, uh, like persistence continuity or, you know, something, it's <laughs> hey. like something weird. And I'm like, okay. Uh, so yeah, every now and then I'll find little snippets of it, but, um, yeah. but yeah. So it's it's fascinating because I, I, I think I can see why like a classical theist, um, I, I, I think I would, I, there's like a pious argument to be made where it's like, look, if you're, if you're a theist, then like you want to say that God holds things uh, in existence. Like it's because of him that we all continue to exist and he holds all things together. Maybe you're quoting scripture there. Um, I could see that. And then you're like, oh, well, we have this doctrine. And so there I can I can start making some arguments based off this view. But you could just as easily be like, well, hey, look, God created it and created it such that it will continue unless uh, a destructive force acts on it. You know, like you could I, th I think it's just as easy to be a theist and be an, you already said it earlier. But do you think it's just as easy to be a theist uh, on either side of the coin? So we, we should get some clarifications here. Yeah. Um, Remember that existential inertialists, in order to be an existential inertialist, at least in order to accept EIT as we define yeah. it, mm -hmm. all you need to hold is that, you know, there's at least one temporal concrete object that persists in right. the absence of external sustenance and uh, sufficient destruction. Yeah. Okay, that's all you need. So a theist who, who is a temporal, who they think that God is temporal, um, 
which he is, by the way. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, a theist who uh, accepts divine temporality, they are thereby going to be accepting existential notion, even if they think that God holds and sustains absolutely everything else in being yeah. and conserves it at each moment at which it exists. Because, again, they have that one, at least one, at least yeah, one thing which exactly. satisfies that uh, thesis. They could also hold, shall we say, a more unrestricted existential inertialist view. And instead of giving uh, God that uh, lone status of persisting inertially, they could also afford that to the things around us. Like, yeah, God's needed to, let's say, create them initially, but uh, they persist of their own accord, as it were, after God uh, kicks things off. So yeah. that's another way to be a theist and an existential inertialist. Now, as you just pointed out, there are really interesting questions here about if you already have theistic commitments, which of these two should you prefer? Um, let's just uh, bracket off the divine timeless views. Sure. So if you're a temporal God um, theorist, which of these two views should you prefer? It's interesting because you might think that there are, uh, like this could be stuff for future research. There, you, know, you could think about perfect being theology. All else being equal, we would want God to be, we want our theory to make God better in some way. We want our theory to make God as best as possible. Yeah. Uh, now, you might think that, hey, God's better if like everything else, like just continually is sourced in God. Like you might think that, um, yeah, if everything's so radically dependent on God and God's the uniquely radically independent thing, you might think that that makes God better in some way. It adds to his greatness or glory or something. Um, so that's one thought. And I, I do see that intuition. But you might also think, as you just pointed out, like, you could imagine someone who accepts the kind of unrestricted existential inertialist view, a theist who accepts it, mind you, and they're like, your God is impotent. He's like, he can't even create like a, a, a world that can exist apart from him, that can at least persist apart from him. So like, yeah. you know, like what? Your God needs to like continually, you know, try to keep it from falling out of existence, you know? Yeah, that's, it's like a spinning plate. Yeah, yeah, I always exactly. think of like, like God, this God can make a spinning plate and then let it go and keep spinning. Like, that's pretty impressive. The other one's like, oh, I got to spin this one. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, you can yeah. pitch so it that like, way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they're like, it might add to God's glory that uh, he can he can create a world like that, that he doesn't need to, like, continually, like, keep it in existence from, like, falling out into non-being. Um, you might think that. So, I mean, yeah. maybe there are intuitions on both sides. And that's an interesting project for theists. Like, look at different perfect being intuitions and see which of these two might be preferable. I mean, again, um, you know, you might argue that scripture already decisively tells in favor of the sustenance view, etc. I've actually met Christians who are like, yeah, existential inertia, the unrestricted one is just obvious. Of course, things just, <laughs> I have met, I, they, they told me, I'm like, well, like, don't you think that like church tradition and things like they're like, no, I'm a Protestant or, you know, they, they say things like that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, okay. Um, but it's been interesting. And I, I brought up the regular passages to them and they were able to like give like coherent responses to them that don't require God to like sustain things. And I was like, whoa. So maybe there is a, there is some room here. Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, I'll, I'll pass that. I mean, the listeners, like, take that up, you know? Let's, uh, I want to hear more about it. That'd be fascinating. Um, Joe, what, what do you think, like, what are some of the, is there a best argument against existential inertia or the EIT thesis? Um, the EIT, I guess. Can't call it a thesis if you include the T in there. Um, is there a best one? Or is there a couple best ones that, that you've been like, oh, that's that's fascinating? Is there a best one um, or a few best ones? Best possible one, maybe? <laughs> I mean, there are some ones that are, like, interesting and suggestive. Uh, the thing is, like, existential inertia, like, it is compatible with so many different, like, 
worldviews and positions that it's actually pretty good. Like you can afford yourself mm -hmm. of different resources to respond to objections. Like if someone says, ah, contingent things require a cause, et cetera. They're like, well, I mean, existential nurse is compatible with there being a temporal necessary thing, which is at the foundation of reality. Maybe it's even God, you know, like it's compatible with theism. Like it's, it's actually somewhat, as we argue in the book, like given the whole panoply of metaphysical accounts of existential inertia, as well as given the, the way that we articulated it, um, like, the only way you can like refute it essentially is to show that there is a sustaining concrete timeless thing or there's a timeless concrete thing which continuously sustains uh, absolutely every yeah. temporal concrete object um and that's i don't know is that's that's difficult i mean the yeah. classical theistic proofs i think are themselves just the best candidates to, to try to try to establish such a thing they try to get to a timeless god and uh, and and yeah that's how they try to do it I guess yeah. okay. Here, here, here's how I would here's how I would argue against existential inertia. I would first. So, I don't think any of the arguments that we examine in in this book against existential inertia. I don't think any of them succeed. Um, here, but here's how I would do it if I were a theist. Give an independent argument for God's existence that doesn't have to do with persistence. Yeah. Right. So, like, talk about psychophysical harmony, or talk about maybe like fine tuning, or you know something. So, get yeah. to God's existence. Get to get to a perfect being. Then try to argue that this perfect being would have to be timeless. So uh, don't do that from like persistence considerations, but you know, like just say um, things like, well, hey, four dimensionalism is true. And if four dimensionalism is true, then God can't be temporal because then you have this like four dimensional God worm thing. Yeah. And there would be like time slices that are each numerically distinct from God, but that are uncaused, that are necessary, that are uh, omniscient, that are omnipotent. So like there are numer things numerically distinct from God that are uh, omniscient and omnipotent. Like that, yeah. that's incompatible with traditional monotheism. Right. So you could like say that uh, four dimensionalism is true and therefore God is timeless. That's the only really plausible way that you could have a timeless mm -hmm. God. You might argue that. Um, and if God is timeless and he's perfect, uh, you've drawn these perfect being intuitions that we've been talking about, like plausibly if god is perfect he's going to be the uniquely independent thing and everything else is going to be owing to god at any moment at which it exists yeah. uh, he's going to have to be radically independent that's a perfection uh and so you just get that there's this timeless thing that sustains everything else and it's kind of an indirect route uh but that's because it's hard to hard to refute existential inertia directly yeah, yeah. that's fascinating yeah i like that i like that approach um yeah, that's good. Well, okay, so um, we talked about off air a little bit about how um, once you have existential inertia in place, some of Phaser's proofs just like just it falls out of existential inertia that these proofs aren't successful. Um, so you cover, I think, like seven proofs in the book. Is that right? Yeah, so we, we do cover seven of them. I could just briefly say which seven they are. I mean, we, we cover actually more than, than seven. It's slightly... Oh, yeah, that's right. You you added a couple into one. Yeah, it's slightly. Yeah. So yeah. the seven are uh, and these are the arguments for classical theism that we look at. We also look at, I, I guess I should say, several different arguments against classical theism as well. So the mm -hmm. seven are for classical theism that we look at Aquinas's first way, uh, the Aristotelian proof. Uh, which is Phaser's, Phaser's Neoplatonic proof, Phaser's Augustinian proof, that's like the theistic conceptualism one. And yep. in that chapter, we also look at Anderson and Welty's case uh, mm -hmm. for God's existence. Um, we also look at Proust and Rasmussen's case uh, based on uh, theistic conceptual, you know, conceptualist reasoning, um, etc. Then we look at the Thomistic proof, the rationalist proof, and then finally Aquinas's Dante argument from essence, existence, composition. Those are the ones for, God, for classical theism that we look at. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so... Okay, dude, like you've done videos where they're like 12 hours long and I love those and I've listened to them. 
Uh, and I've listened to some portions twice, but we can't do that here. I wonder if we could like hop through just like a, a you know, really high up view and just talk about how existential inertia deals with those or interacts yeah. with or refutes. So like just starting with one, Aquinas' first way, um, you, you, you guys say that um, this first way, you know, reasons from change to a purely actual unmoved mover. And this is chapter two of the book. Um, how does ex existential inertia interact with, with the Aquinas' first way? It doesn't. So no, <laughs> it's interesting. This one is interesting because sort of in the beginning, we articulate, you know, how I was articulating um, persistence arguments earlier yeah. and the kind of abstract structure that they instantiate. We also look at two kind of different types of arguments in this book. One of them is, you know, the, Aug the Augustinian proof. That has nothing to do with, right. uh, with existential inertia. That's kind of like just abstract objects, right? Mm -hmm. So existential inertia doesn't tackle that one. And so we, I forget what we call those kinds of arguments. I don't think we gave a name to them. But there's also another kind of argument that we examine in this book, and it's the argument from change. And that one actually doesn't focus on explaining things as existence, right? So existential inertia, which is focused on explaining things as existence uh, at their non-first moments of their existence, right? Existential inertia is kind of going to be irrelevant to that because uh, uh, it's, it's focusing on a different explanandum. It's focusing on change. Like, why, why is there change? And you try to explain that in terms of a purely actual... Uh, unchangeable being. So in short, existential inertia doesn't quite tackle that one. Uh, now, I should say there are some interpretations of Aquinas's five ways yeah. that make them almost identical to Aquinas's Dante argument. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it would challenge them. Yeah. But I'm going on a different interpretation, as we say in the book, uh, I'm go we're going on a different interpretation that focuses on change and just explicitly change and yeah. the actualization of potential. So, so yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's. I thought that was really helpful because um, that, yeah, and the uh, Augustinian proof are, you could hold to those and hold to existential inertia, but there's maybe independent reasons why you wouldn't be, for, for, for instance, for the Augustinian proof, why there's problems if you are a classical theist uh, for holding that because, you know, God's supposed to be simple and he's got all these numbers in his head then like, it doesn't look like he's simple. So, boom. Um, well, let's jump on to uh, the Aristotelian proof. Uh, this reasons from change and the existence of change, uh, uh, the existence of changeable substances to a purely actual, unactualized actualizer. Uh, existential inertia challenges this. Yeah, yeah. So one thing I should say before explaining the proof and how existential inertia challenges it is that there are a lot of different challenges to each of these arguments. Right. Uh, we give a really nice summary at the end. One of the reviewers, the anonymous reviewers uh, for the book, the anonymous referees for the book, uh, really enjoyed the the con like the concluding chapter because it like really nicely summarizes like the central criticisms that we lay out yeah. that we lay to like each of the arguments and we do it in number to form, etc. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of different criticisms of this, but one among the many yeah. is existential inertia. Now, what is the argument? Well. We actually did a podcast episode on that. So if people want to check in, check into this further, we did a podcast on the Aristotelian proof. It's on one of the, the chapters or one of the papers that I wrote and that I revised uh, to include in this book. Mm -hmm. So the proof roughly and basically in super simple terms, it says uh, there are beings that can undergo change. It's kind of obvious. Premise two, beings that can undergo change require a sustaining cause. Yeah. Premise three, chains of those sustaining causes cannot be infinite. And so it follows that there's an uncaused sustaining cause of those things. And since things that can undergo change require a sustaining cause, and this thing doesn't have a sustaining cause, it follows that this thing cannot undergo change. Yeah. 
And so it's a purely actual, it doesn't have any potentialities for change. So it's a purely actual, unchangeable first cause, we can say. Mm -hmm. So that's like a super simplified way to run the argument, uh, much simpler than Phaser's 50 premise proof. Uh, again, proof in like 30 billionaire quotes. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's a basic thrust of the argument. And uh, which premise does it target? Well, of course, it targets that one where it says beings that can undergo change require a sustaining cause. Yeah. Uh, existential militia just directly challenges that. I mean, at least, uh, yeah, I mean, existential militia just directly challenges that because it says, uh, well, why, why think that? I mean, yeah. things may very well just persist without requiring a sustaining cause. That doesn't mean that they persist without an explanation, right. mind you, right. um, because there are explanations that are non-causal. There are buttloads of non-causal explanations. This is a perfectly kosher point. This is uncontroversial in the philosophy of explanation literature, etc. It's like there are explanations that are non-causal and we cite in chapter, what is it? I should really have these chapters memorized. Well, Joe, I think even like from a classical theist point of view, if you're going like, usually they like Aristotle and like I, a formal cause uh, is, is non-causal. It's not an efficient cause, right? So yeah, not an efficient cause in the sense that this argument is talking about. They're right. talking about efficient sustaining causes. I, I, we can clarify that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But so, like, they should be on board with those kind of things. Like, yes, there are uh, explanations that are not causal, even though, like, we're equivocating on causal lang like language right now. But a formal cause is not that kind of thing. Yeah, itia, which is the the Greek word for the what they use for like the formal cause, etc., yeah. is better translated as explanation. In fact, yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's like a formal explanation. Right, right, so, right. So yeah, there are non-causal explanations. And in chapter six, we go through a bunch of different explanations, even of these inertially persistent objects. So objects that persist inertially. Yeah. We go through explanations of them, even at non-first moments of their existence. So existential inertia does not say that uh, their persistence is brute. It does not say that their existence at non-first moments is brute. Yeah. It, it's perfectly compatible with them having an explanation. And in fact, we systematically provide uh, well over a dozen kind of uh, like explanations that that could uh, could be given and we br we group them into different like accounts so some of them are in terms of like tendencies or dispositions that the object possesses some of them are in terms of like causal relations efficient causal relations that are cross temporal or that span different times rather than being a kind of hierarchical sustaining cause yeah. uh, but rather like the different shall we say stages of an object's life and this can actually be cast in endurantist or perdurantist terms the different stages or phases of an object's life are themselves related by causal relations of production yeah. so that's another view uh, still other views say that well like um it's explained by the fact that persistence is the absence of change you know when something's persisting it's just like remaining in existence it's not like it's uh, changing in any way right. qua persisting object now it might be changing in ways that are unrelated to its very existence but in terms of its existence it's unchanging yeah. and you might think that it's just part of the very nature of change that um something that is unchanged is going to stay unchanged unless uh you know something kind of disrupts it from that state yeah uh, and that kind of that kind of falls out of certain even explanatory principles that some of these arguments use as we argue in uh, in chapter four yeah so there are lots of, and that's just a small survey you can also appeal to laws of nature you can appeal to um metaphysical necessity like like lots of different explanations um so yeah so you can target that premise which says that things that can change require a sustaining cause and you can offer an explanation to boot. You can offer an explanation of why they do, in fact, persist. Yeah. That makes no reference to sustaining causes. Yeah. And once we do that, then I think that this argument just loses all of its force, at least by my lights. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good, man. That's, yeah, that's really helpful. I'm, I'm tempted to, to dive back in, but we got a bunch more arguments to cover. So let's let's look at uh, the, the, third, uh, the third one, the Neoplatonic proof, which reasons from composite beings to an absolutely simple being. Yeah, so how do, how do these two clash? 
Yeah, so again, I'm going to give a simplified version of this argument, and it's going to sound very similar to the previous one. Mm -hmm. uh, that's because it actually is really similar, ultimately. Um, yeah, it says that, hey, there are composite things, and we're not just talking about physically composite, like here's a right hand and then a left hand. Mm -hmm. the, these are physical objects. Yeah. Uh, but like also metaphysically composite. Now, you might be suspicious of metaphysical composition, as I am, hmm. but because uh, uh, that's kind of like a constituent ontologist notion, and we might be good platonic uh, relational ontologists, yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as, one, as one should be, but <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, or one should be, or one might be a nominalist, which is the second best option. No, yeah, no. I don't know. I'm just... Uh, <laughs> Platonism, nominalism. No, okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, those are two best. But uh, anyway, anyway, Platonism is better. But um, yeah. okay, Amen. we've already covered this stuff. I'm going to stop. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, he talks about uh, physical composition, but he's also talking about metaphysical composition as well. So things having like different properties, um, like form, or I know that's not really property, but different metaphysical constituents like form and matter, or uh, etc. So thing, there are composite things. But every composite thing requires a sustaining cause at each moment at which it exists. And that means that there are chains of sustaining causes of composite things. Uh, and those cannot go on to infinity. You have to have a first cause, so he argues. Uh, and because composite things require a sustaining cause, and this thing doesn't have a cause, it follows that it is non-composite. And hence, we have an absolutely simple uh, first primary cause of things. Yeah. That's the basic thrust of the argument. Well, Again, Joe, like, it's almost identical. Yeah. yeah. Is the sustaining cause meant... or? the sustenance like condition is that is that meant to like say that these since it's composite something needs to continue holding them together lest they yeah, fall so there are slightly different motivations in each of these like slightly different motivations in each of these cases for that that premise which yeah. is like the eit denying premise right um uh yeah in this case one of the motivations is a kind of like, yeah, an explicability requirement. It's like, why are its parts combined even at that non-first moment of its existence? Like, why are they all together? Why are they there the way that it is? Mm -hmm. uh, you need some kind of outside cause that um, conjoins them together and holds them together as the thing persists. Yeah. Now, uh, why you can't have an internal cause of that or like, uh, you know, like certain attractive forces within the thing in question, let's not get into that criticism because uh, that successfully rebuts it on its own right. Yeah, but, you know, sure, sure. <laughs> uh, go into the book for people who are curious about that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there are different motivations, as you point out. That was a, that was a perceptive point. Uh, and in this case, it is about like what explains the unity, the the, the togetherness, uh, the compresence of those yeah. parts, whether they be physical or metaphysical parts. Yes. So, yeah, that's that's the proof. And uh, again, it's not it's not terribly unclear how existential inertia challenges that. It challenges that premise, which requires a sustaining cause. Uh, I mean the audience is probably starting to see a pattern and that pattern is precisely the persistence argument pattern that I gave at the beginning. Again, there are entities of kind K yeah. and you just basically fill in what that K is and you say that they require a sustaining cause. Sustaining causes, cha ugh, chains of sustaining causes cannot be infinite. So there's a first uncaused clause uh, and that can't be of that kind because that kind requires a cause. And so uh, we have a first cause that is not of that kind. Yeah. Again, all the persistence arguments basically follow this schema. So much so, in fact, that one of the, like, not anonymous referees for Fazer's book, but like one of the people who publish a review. So this is a professional philosopher. His name is Logan Paul Gage. I believe that's his name. I believe Ooh, that's, that's how you a, pronounce that's it. That's an interesting name to have in this day and age. Logan Paul Gage. Mike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he published a review of Fazer's book. And he basically, he basically says, and again, I'm paraphrasing, so don't take this as a quote of Gage. But he's like, there are two arguments in this book, not five proofs. There are two. Yeah. <laughs> one of them is basically like, hey, uh, Certain kinds of things require sustaining causes, and those can't be infinite, et cetera. Yeah. And then the other one is the Augustinian proof. So, like, 
this is not just me who's like <laughs> saying that like they're really sketchy similarities here they're not actually like properly independent right like they yeah. all rest on pretty similar assumptions uh, yeah. and they're all targeted we make this point in a footnote as well but like like a few criticisms apply to like four of these and just like knock them essentially and and a couple of them i think like um uh like the Thomistic proof depends on it um you know maybe the aristotelian proof or like there a couple of them are built, actually built on top of each other so you take this one out then like they both fall together. oh especially their second stage yeah so yeah. the second stage all of them all the second stages of all the proofs rely on the aristotelian proof that's why we only have a chapter on the aristotelian proof second stage and we say like hey this this doesn't work yeah which is good so but like um it's actually it actually is important for you to go through and show like the show the work like because we could say it and be like look they all fall to this okay but but show it okay so we'll show it you know so actually it's, it is actually really important for you to go through and show how each one does fall uh, yeah even and though I mean, it, I... it might be tedious to the you know but it's not it's yeah. it's, it's good because they all do fall by the same thing but it, they fall in different ways a little bit yeah yeah and again i'm like i don't want to fall into the same traps that uh, as part of the motivation for me writing this book right i don't claim that like existential inertia is like a decisive demonstr right. demonstrative disproof of these arguments yeah. um like listen uh metaphysics is really hard i'm trying to do it my best <laughs> and uh and this is where i have landed and i am totally open to belief revision etc and uh these arguments that I've developed and the criticisms that I've developed strike me as convincing, but I'm not going to say that they're in Super Bowl or that they make people who disagree irrational, et cetera. So, yeah, no. And even uh, with this last one, with the uh, Neoplatonic proof, like <clears throat> it's so fascinating that it's so open to a theistic uh, response as well. Like, well, God made it that way or God made it such that intrinsically it holds together. Like, and you could give some other principle too and make it sound better too. But like that one just seems so, it's so so open to be like, well, why is it like that without God actively holding it together? Well, because God can design stuff that holds together lest, yeah. uh, you know, destructive force hits it. And, that That's, yeah. I just want to say, sorry to interrupt, but that's a really, really good point. And that's like another one of the central criticisms of a lot of these arguments that we put forward is like the non-classical theist actually has really good responses to these arguments because yeah. they actually, they have a principled foundation for reality, it, like this perfect, unlimited, axiologically supreme, uncaused, necessary being. Um, even if it's temporal, even if it can undergo accidental change, even if its essence is numerically distinct from its existence, maybe those aren't even metaphysical parts in reality to begin with, but yeah. set that aside. Um, <clears throat> if it is composite air quotes on composite in the sense of wow it's it's omniscient it's numerically distinct from its omnipotence okay uh like they still have pretty good responses to these arguments because they're like it's no surprise there's no mystery as to why like god's properties are united together like why omniscience is found together with omnipotence and so on i mean some of these are mutually impaling uh some like you can have a unifying explanation in terms of for instance god's perfection um uh, you can have hold apart God grounding. So God as a whole grounds his various parts, yeah. quote unquote parts, again, in the classical theist sense. Uh, the, I, I don't think non-classical theists should grant that, that these are parts, but set that aside. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, non, as you're pointing out, like non-classical theists also have like distinctive responses to these arguments. And yeah. it's like, um, yeah, like God can explain the unity of these objects, uh, as you were pointing out. And also like the quote unquote unity of God can be explained in terms of like God's perfection or like God himself as a, as a whole apart grounding or, you know, like lots of other explanations. Yeah, no, dude, I think you're totally right on that. And even like thinking through like I, ideas of like inseparable parts and, and yeah. like, yeah, like, 
Uh, Miriology, Miriology, yeah, has some some good stuff to say here, uh, which doesn't need to be ruled out beforehand. But I, well, another thing that's pretty fun here is like, if you are a non-classical theist, then you have to adopt. Uh, if you're going to use these arguments, then you have to retool them at least a little bit because like he's, he's meaning these to prove in a classical theistic God. So like if you're a neoclassical theist, then you don't get to just take these, like you got to adapt them. They're not just stock arguments for you, which I, I think not enough people recognize where they'll like throw a bunch of arguments together. And this is something you point out all the time where it's like, Hey, these, these point to different, these go different directions. Like mm-hmm. You don't get to just slap these all together. You need to, retool them and do that hard work go ahead and do it but like just throwing out a list where they prove different uh models of god is 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 not that great yeah exactly and that that point is just so underappreciated by so many people it's like you know it's totally fine and indeed advisable to mount cumulative cases in favor of views right that is how we do theory comparison that is how we come to conclusions we bring together a total range of evidence uh, and arguments, etc. Uh, but you got to be careful that your arguments aren't supporting different, like, just incompatible models of God. Yeah. Some of them might be, like, really highly dependent on, uh, like, a pretty good knowledge of um, God and God's having intentions and God's being a mind, etc., yeah. whereas other ones might pull very strongly against that. Yeah. Uh, and they might even, you know, some of them might imply that there are things within God that are numerically distinct from God, yeah. like numbers or propositions or abstracta, whereas others, like uh, four of Phaser's proofs, uh, are going to imply that, uh, no, there's nothing intrinsic to God that is distinct from God, etc. So, like, you've got to be very careful when you're mounting cumulative cases and getting theistic arguments on your, on your, uh, on your back because they they might they might actually conflict with one another. Yeah, well, and and like a, a like even if you're a classical theist, like Phaser, we argue that his Augustinian proof conflicts with his exactly four other proofs. right, and it's because it's because he wants to be a realist about these things. But if he if he were to take like you know Brian Leftow's view, not that it's not going to have its own problems, but saying like, well, I'm an anti-realist about this, and it's kind of like realism, but it's definitely not because these thoughts are not you know. You'd have to do that in order to even be a classical theist and appropriate that. So it's just fascinating, man. I, I'm with you on this. I, I like it because it. I think it elevates the conversation. Um, and I'm I'm excited to see people come back from this and be like, all right, well, here, I took it seriously, and here's what I got for you, Joe. Like that. That'll be that'll be sick to see that. Lord willing, that's gonna happen. Like hopefully, hopefully people do um, take it seriously and don't just go, ah, oh, freaking Joe. Um, let's jump on to. Let's skip the Augustinian proof, unfortunately. But we, I mean, we've talked. We did a about whole video. Yeah, yeah. let's plug that video. Everyone, go check. I I loved it so much that I was like, I'm posting this on my channel, yeah. and <laughs> I've gotten so yeah. much good feedback. People really enjoyed that episode. Um, I I loved it too. Um, but so the the Thomistic proof, <clears throat> which reasons from essence, existence, composites to a being in which essence and existence are identical. Um, help us out, man. Yeah, what do we think? I'm going to sound like a broken record, but this argument starts with the claim that there are things in which essence and existence are distinct. Then it basically says, again, I'm, this is a paraphrase and I'm not, you know, look at the book if you want to get the proof and you know, the, et cetera. Uh, Then it says things in which essence and existence are distinct require a concurrent sustaining cause at any moment at which it exists. Those chains cannot be infinite. Therefore there is a first cause. And because things in which essence and existence are distinct require a sustaining cause and this thing doesn't have a sustaining cause, it follows that its essence and existence are not distinct. That is, they are identical. 
Uh, and so then there is this thing in which essence and existence are numerically identical, and allegedly this is God. Uh, so, <laughs> and you can again, you can see how existential inertia challenges that. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of other challenges as well. Like, <clears throat> you might come equipped with a non-Thomistic understanding of existence, yeah. as I do. You might reject ontological pluralism, as I do. You might reject Thomistic understanding of essence, as I do. You might reject, <laughs> yeah. and so on down the list. Uh, you might, uh, you might think that that conclusion doesn't get you to God, as I do. Uh, yeah. You might think that that conclusion is actually. Well, maybe I shouldn't go there. I was going to say, like, we have a footnote in this book. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, we have a footnote in this book where, like, actually, no, I think it's in the Neoplatonic Proof chapter, where, like, actually, maybe, like, a more plausible conclusion of some of these arguments is atheism because they get you to this, like, absolutely simple being. But you might think that were God to exist, he'd have to be some kind of plurality. Maybe a plurality of concepts he'd have to have, maybe a plurality of thoughts, maybe a plurality of divine persons, maybe a plurality, like at least a plurality of something, yeah. you might think, in order for God to be like truly personal. Like he has to have a plurality of something, maybe yeah. desires, maybe intentions, etc. Um, but then like just by the Neoplatonic proof's own reasoning, what combines that plurality? What keeps it together? What explains why the plurality, why the elements of the plurality are unified as they are? Um, if it's okay to cite one of the members of that plurality in the case of God, and then you can just do that in the case of the composite things, right? Yeah. You can cite one of the members of that plurality to explain why they're united. You can have an internal explanation. Yeah. Uh, if if they're nothing that explains it, then you can say that about some kind of foundational thing that's in the you know that's composite, etc. So like, if you take the argument to its natural conclusion and follow its reasoning where it naturally leads, we argue, or at least I would argue personally. Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps this uh, <laughs> I say perhaps multiple times. Perhaps the best conclusion to draw here is atheism. There is just this atheistic, impersonal, neoplatonic one. And it's like unity itself. It's being itself. It's impersonal. It mm. doesn't care about us at all, etc. cetera. Uh, that seems to me a much more natural fit with the first stage of these arguments uh, by my lights. And then you don't get into all these problems about contingent knowledge, uh, God's contingent knowledge, and like uh, God somehow being uh, personal, you know, trying to all, you know, trying to square all the circles that you try to do with classical theism. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to worry about God's changing knowledge of a changing creation because like this thing doesn't have any knowledge. You don't have to worry about uh, relating to this, you know, impersonal being itself, which doesn't have any, you know, real relations and it's not really affected by us because it's impassable. Like our prayers don't have any yeah. effect on it, etc. So like you don't even have to worry about all that. Just say that it's an impersonal, atheistic, mindless one. Uh, and you get all these classical theistic arguments, all the stage ones, uh, you get all that. And uh, stage two itself doesn't even work, as we argue. So perhaps... I'm emphasizing perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps these are good arguments for atheism. So I thought um, that about I, I I thought about um Graham Oppie's view of like necessity, the branching one, right? It's it's uh it's uh neo Aristotelian mm -hmm. and it's like this I don't even know what to call it, right? I don't know if it's like a thing or whatever, but it's like the, the is it just the universe itself? And it's like oh, all, all singularity? The, yeah. The initial singularity like I, I I can't remember if it's like a, it's a it's a concrete thing, right? Mm -hmm. And um, is it the universe itself? Um. Uh, that might depend. That might depend yeah. on whether we're enduring to well, excuse me, whether we are B theorists or A theorists, right? Yeah, so yeah. for B theorists, that'll just be an initial segment of the universe, presumably. If we are, and Oppie likes B theory, and if we are A theorists, um or at least uh, non-eternalist atheists, then it's not going to be 
or excuse me, uh, I'll say presentist. If we're presentist, yeah, sure. then it, it'll presumably exhaust the universe at that at the early stages. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, all that to say, like, yeah, um, that is fascinating that it might it might do that. That's why, man, I, I always I always go for like a Trinitarian view if I can, because that's what that's the kind of God I believe in. So I'm like, well, let me think through that. Like Chad McIntosh in his dissertation goes in like for metaphysical grounding and is like, well, it has to be three things metaphysically ground. And it's like, okay, that's an argument. That's, that's fascinating. Let's look at that more. But yeah, the, I've always kind of had, um, I've always been kind of nervous about, you know, or about classical theism because of certain reasons like this. And like all my favorite arguments are like anthropological ones, like the argument from reason and consciousness and all these kind of things where you're like, but then you, you kind of like cut off this thing by saying God's not a person like us. And you're like, well, dang it, you, you guys. Um, so, yeah, I feel that. Um, that's a fascinating point. Um, uh, rationalist proof, which reasons from contingent beings to a necessary existent, necessarily existent, purely actual being. Um, man, so the actus purest thing, like that and like God being, that being itself. Yeah. That comes out of nowhere in this particular proof. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry. This is one of the most frustrating parts of the book where I, where I was writing this. I'm like, okay, Phaser, you know, uses the PSR, gets to a necessary thing. Mm -hmm. Like, people who know me know that, like, I'm generally sympathetic with some contingency a, a arguments. Type, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Some, type. some contingency arguments I'm, I'm totally cool with in yeah. general. I'm sympathetic, I should say. Yeah. Uh, you know, there and are a certain type of PSR, there. like, that you're cool yeah. with that. Like, yeah. 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 Uh, so like he gets to a con necessary concrete thing and like in the book we're like yeah we're just gonna grant you that like we're not gonna challenge your PSL we're not gonna do any of that like I don't really I don't really have any bones to pick uh, with yeah. that so he gets to this necessary thing and then he's like it has to be purely actual then <laughs> where does that come from and okay his argument is like well if it weren't then it'd have potentialities that need to be actualized in order for it to exist uh, in which case it wouldn't be the first, you know, foundational thing. There'd be something that, that actualizes its potentiality for existence. And it's just so utterly strange. Like, it doesn't follow from the fact that it's not, it doesn't follow from the fact that it's not purely actual, that it has potentials that need to exist in order to be, in, that, that need to be actualized in order to exist. No, its potentials are for accidental properties that it could gain or lose. Yeah. None of those need to be actualized in order for this thing to exist. Yeah. So, it's just the strangest argument. It's so overwhelmingly bad. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I just this this is one of those cases where I'm like, I really can't see it, and it seems really implausible to me. Again, I will stress that I could totally be wrong here. Yeah. I could be missing something. I want to emphasize that it's important to emphasize intellectual humility and to try to cultivate it. And I can lose it, and I, I can fail to exhibit it. Um, it's just in this case, it really does strike me as so wrong uh but again i could be mistaken but again <laughs> yeah. well okay so that that is a really huge benefit um to having someone criticize your your stuff because if you're in a room of um people who agree with you they'll be like yeah for sure because i also hold that view like i actually mm -hmm. i made this that argument that i've been presenting uh uh for god from donald davidson's triangulation argument i tried this move way back in the day, like a couple years ago. And James Anderson was like, mm, what? You can't do that one. And I was like, yeah, but I just wanted to slap it on because I thought it'd be like a nice little like, yeah. And if he had to, you know, if he had to uh, depend on someone to communicate with, and that was an essential property and it was all these ands, 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 and 
it also didn't follow. And I was just like, okay. And he like a couple of my philosopher friends just were like, dude, you, that's not good. And so I understand it and I get it why it's like, okay. And there's this added thing where like, you need to be just pure actuality because then you wouldn't be dependent on the creature. And that's, it's like, yeah, that's a theological point. And I get it. And I see wanting to add that on, but you can't just slap it on if it doesn't fit because yeah. someone's going to come along and they're going to slap you for doing that. <laughs> and it doesn't yeah. look good. Yeah. So I, yeah. I definitely so like resonate with it, but I'm also glad that you're like, mm, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one, one problem that, uh, that I have, I mean, one of my, it's, a, we, it's almost like a small point in that chapter. Cause like, I mean, again, a broader point is like phaser uses the PSR to try to argue that things require like some kind of, um, let me see if I can um, pull up the chapter. But anyway, it's again, he talks about this sustaining causal explanation. Yeah. But it's like, again, there are explanations that don't cite this kind of sustaining efficient cause. And we argue that alone is going to be able to allow us to account for the non-first, for the existence of these objects at non-first moments of their existence. You don't need to appeal to some kind of sustaining cause. So this one, again, falls into that category of persistence arguments that, that, we, yeah. that we challenge. And so, it, again, it's going to succumb to the existential inertia challenge. Um, I mean, we should emphasize for the audience, of course, that, you know, Phaser has written uh, and published arguments against existential inertia yeah. directly. Um, but we should also mention for the audience that I have like dozens of pages addressing those. So, uh, so check out, check out the, the chapter. So people don't think like, Oh, you're ignoring that he published this paper. And he, as I, I know that the, the ire and the wrath of, uh, internet <laughs> domists, um, yeah, I have been indelibly marked by it, by it. And, uh, yeah. and yeah. yeah, so I just wanted to say that, yes, I recognize that he has published on, on criticisms of existential inertia directly. And we're not talking about those here. If you want yeah. to look at those, my responses, check out the book. Yeah. Joe, it, it's got to be like a good feeling being able to have the academic work like literally in your hand being like, it, it is right here. Some, sometimes it's hard to talk about certain ideas because you're like, look, um, I can't, this is a podcast. So like, I can't give you all the propositions right now in the footnotes. Um, <laughs> even like, even if I read them, like it just, you would be bored. It would not work any longer, but having them being able to be like, I have the work, you can buy the book and look it up. It's got to be like it got partially freeing at least because you can go like, hey, look, here's a, a rough sketch, but I can do that because I've also done the hard work. It's right here. Like, it's yeah, gotta, it's got to feel good. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And speaking of the book, so <laughs> we both forgot about this at the beginning, but uh, for the audience, check the links in the description. I'm doing yeah, yeah. I'm doing this for four four Parker. Yeah, yeah. Check links in the description. There'll be stuff that you can uh, click on to go and, and get the book. The hardcover. Yeah. I mean, I don't have control of the prices. Springer primarily serves libraries. That's why it's so expensive. Yeah, yeah. I don't have control of the prices. The hardcover is going to be $150. So don't get the hardcover. The soft cover on Amazon is only $56 for an academic book. That is not unreasonable no, okay that's no. not unreasonable for an academic book only 56 dollars. Yeah. it's 378 pages and i really do think it'll serve you guys whether Joe, i was gonna i was gonna do this at the end man you gotta there's a, <laughs> there's a whole pattern to it to get them off yeah but, but go well, ahead yeah, whether or not yeah. yeah just whether or not you're a classical theist or a non-classical theist i really do think it'll serve you it's it's quite long and we give a very good hearing to like classical theists themselves um you'll often hear and i think they, this is a quite right criticism that you'll often hear that certain certain popular presentations from atheists and non-theists of the five ways and of classical theistic proofs um, 
they miss certain things. Like they'll talk about, oh no, these things are trying to prove the beginning of the universe. I'm like, no, that's not what they're trying to do. Like yeah. they miss a lot of things. And so we really try to listen to the classical theists themselves to give them a voice and to respond in the way that we think that they deserve, because this is a robust intellectual tradition and we respect it. And we're going to yeah. give it the time that it deserves. And we're going to give it the critical attention that it deserves. A book length critical, the book length critical attention that it deserves. Like, like Oppie and Sobel and these people, they're writing books on general theism. They're not really even going into the specific models of God, which yeah. afford different arguments and different maneuvers to respond to objections and things like that we wanted this to be a systematic critical appraisal of like central classical theistic specifically classical theistic groups because there really isn't one on offer on that so this is kind of like a unique book in that and that's why i think it'll serve both classical theists and non-classical theists and again we give classical theism at least by my lights we give it the respect that it deserves in this book um and i mean criticism is a form of respect right especially among philosophers because you're respecting enough to give it the time of day give it the light of day and to think about it really hard and to you know publish your criticisms of it yeah. so ultimately in the service of you know trying to help us all get to the truth of the matter so yeah yeah i caught that in the intro too it was it was cool seeing like the different things like your, your aims and goals and stuff like that and and just being like yeah I'm, we're trying to serve truth I, I really like that it is a really fascinating point that you just mentioned that like um a lot of people on both sides want the most bang for their buck if i'm going to write a book if i'm going to do like i need this to be very very broad scope and like i get this because i like transcendental arguments so like i want everything with one argument so i get that and so it's it is a really cool thing that you're doing that's like and we are focusing in on this and and actually it will have broad scope because there's plenty of theists who are non classical theists and like classical like it it is really good for everyone but it's actually like um a finer point of philosophy of religion man it's like it's like it's at the nexus of like um analytic theology and philosophy of religion type stuff which is cool like it's, I mean, that's why I love, yeah. I mean, that's why I loved like writing this. I love these, these sorts of areas. Like, where does this book fall into? Yeah. Well, on the Springer page, and, and we had a say in what goes on that Springer page. We didn't had a say in all of it. Uh, the, the, the keywords on the Springer page are hilarious. They're, they're <laughs> so funny. One of them is like, because we talk about existential inertia, like some of the typesetters, we, we, we didn't have any say in the, 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 the words that they put up there for like the keywords, you know, um, for articles you do, but for this book, apparently we didn't. So they had like existentialism or something as one of them, <laughs> existentialism as one of like, the keywords. And I was like, that's not, but, that's okay. but anyway, um, yeah, but like, where does this fit in? Like, well, as we say on the, on the Springer page, like it's metaphysics, it's philosophy of religion, it's philosophy of time. Those are the main areas, but it's like, this is, I mean, this goes into like lots of different things. We got philosophy of physics in here. There's yeah. some philosophy of science in here. There's a lot of metaphysics in here. There's philosophy of time, which is like kind of sub-branch of metaphysics. There's a lot of philosophy of religion, of course, and models of God, but also thereby analytic theology. Yeah. There is like, it, it's in a lot of different areas and we pursue them in a lot of depth in many cases. So it's like, it's both broad, but also like narrow in, in the same sense. Like yeah. it's focused on classical theistic proofs, but it's also focused on like existential inertia and why things persist and those debates. So it like brings in debates and kind of weaves them together and puts them in communication with one another in ways that I, I hope the audience will find illuminating. Yeah. And I think they will, especially my audience, but um, that's something I really enjoy about um philosophical theology, philosophy of religion, analytic theology, like there's just so much on the table. And depending on the book, depending on the article you're writing, like you're going to have to draw in a ton of stuff from philosophy and sub-disciplines in philosophy. And if you're, if you're a theist, like then there's a lot on the table too, where you're like, well, I also have to like bring in my tradition because I, 
I am a part of a tradition. I can't say certain things. Should I be able to say certain things? Well, maybe not. And like the whole thing's cool, man. I, I love that. So sometimes I get, we've talked about this before. Sometimes I have the inner Parker who's like, ah, oh, philosophy of religion. I'm like, wait, wait, no, no. That's why I actually care about time and all this other stuff too. So um, I love it, man. I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the service that you're doing here. Uh, we got one more. Uh, Aquinas's De Ente argument, um, which reasons from creaturely composition of essence and existence essay to an absolutely simple being of pure essay. So hit me. <laughs> well, this one is one of the most complicated out of out of <laughs> all of them. Um, so it's sort of like it, it's a lot similar to the Thomistic proof that we read. So Phaser bases his Thomistic proof. It's his own distinctive argument, but it's largely based on this Dante argument that's originally found in Aquinas and that's developed, I think, most forcefully and carefully in Gavin Kerr or Kerr. Uh, you can pronounce that. I've heard it different ways. I think I've asked him before, and he said, I think, I, I think, if, if I recall correctly, he said either is fine. I think. <laughs> so, that helps. So I was like, that makes it well, yeah. helps. I mean, it makes it no, worse. I know, it's like, right. like, Kerr. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. you're being sarcastic. Yeah. Uh, some people say Kerr, and others like Karen. I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. For some reason, you know, whenever we're reading, we almost like form an initial word. At least I do this, like an initial impression of what an, what a word like should be. Yep. And for me, I think it should be like care. Like it seems care uh, to I, me. Like care seems so weird. But I'm with you on that. Yeah, I, I think the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's the initial. Everyone, <laughs> everyone adds an L. It's always settle case. And, uh, settle okay. case. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's great. So yeah, I mean. We can't. I can't hope to give this one the, the attention that it deserves yeah. in this uh, form here. But like, it's very similar to the Thomistic proof. It's basically saying there is this uh, distinction, a real distinction in things between their essence, that is what they are, and their existence, that is that they are, the fact that they are, or this principle of actuality, that whereby a thing is at all in reality. Yeah. So there's this distinction between. Uh, their whatness and their isness, their essence and their existence. Uh, and then based on various different justifications, they say that anything which is like that, which is such that its essence and existence are distinct, uh, requires a concurrent sustaining cause. And again, there are different justifications. They don't just flatly assert that. Um, and we look at the justifications extensively in our book. And so they, again, they go on this sort of reasoning that, uh, well, if it exists through another, per aliud, if it exists, uh, if these essence existence composites exist through another, through only a, the activity of a sustaining cause, um, ultimately you're going to have to get to something which doesn't exist through another, which doesn't, it doesn't derive its causality, doesn't derive its existence from any other thing. And since everything in which essence and existence are distinct does indeed derive its existence from another in that sort of way, it follows that this uh, first underived thing is such that its essence and existence are numerically identical. And this is where you get the kind of ipsum essay subsistence, yeah. the subsistent act of being itself. Now, there's actually a little illicit slide there from identical to its own act of existence versus identical to existence itself. Yeah, right, right, right. right. That's a little bit of a slide. Yeah. Uh, but uh, And the second one, like, I, <clears throat> I'm not sure how everyone's so comfortable with that, all the theists. Like, it, to me, it just intuitively seems not right to say that like his essence his essence is existence itself because you're like but i exist and like do 
that sounds like pantheism to me, you know? And I know that there's like certain ways of getting around that and stuff, but yeah, they like, they distinguish between like different kinds of existence. And so like, like you're going to, there's this essay commune or like communal existence or the existence that you and I have. Um, But then there's essay tantum, which is God's existence, which is a different existence. Right. But but Uh, it's not, but then like, that's not existence itself. Right. Like, because so it's like, okay. And it almost deprives it of it's like mystical, you know, like people say this and they're like, Oh, existence itself, man. Light a bong or something. Uh, (laughs) And then it's true. And then they're like, and then you, you press it a little bit further and it's like, it's actually not as mystical and supreme and transcendent as no, you think it is. It's no. like, oh, well, you know, God has his own active existence. I and know. it's kind of like, it's almost like this little trope with which God is identical to his own active existence. And it's like, I mean, okay, fine. Everything else exists in some sense by participating in that active existence and by relation to it and deriving our existence from that thing. Okay. But it's like, theists have always held that. I mean, this is like, where is the kind of distinctive yeah. mystical, cool uh, transcendence from you get from from saying this? Like, it doesn't have the same ring when you kind of spell it out as like, oh, God is being itself. But then you have to kind of say, well, he's identical to his own active existence. And yeah, we're all like related to it in a pretty yeah. cool way. Uh, but but it's not our existence. He isn't this uh, like it's not as mystical as it sounds when, when when you when you start to get out of like the kind of pantheistic opinion. No. Of those sorts of. Yeah, well, if yeah. you if we went in for like um, like idealism and we're like we're ideas in God's mind. You could do some of that and you'd be like, yeah, like I only exist because I'm his thought, but at all. But then like you'd have to say like, well, God is identical to his thoughts. And you're like, well, but then how many billions of people are there on the earth right now? Just people. <laughs> so then, yeah. you know what I mean? And it's like, well, then I'm Joe. Then me and Joe are just one. And you're like, well, no, that can't work either. Like, and I have my own thoughts and they're different than Joe. And maybe I can dream up a, a fake world right now with billions of people. Like it just... It's just tough. I, I just think that one's so tough to be like, yeah, his essence is existence. Um, and then you, it dies a thousand qualifications. But yeah. Yeah. yeah and I, I just wanted to clarify that uh, earlier I was not attributing to the Thomists who run this argument a trope theoretic account. Um, that was just an analogy, if you will, uh, as to how uh, one way that one might think that this sort of looks from the outside, it sort right. of looks like a trope theoretic account of, of existence yeah. where we each have our like essays, our individual acts of existence. Uh, and those are not God's act of existence, right? They have to be distinct because right. God is not like an internal composing principle of us, whereas our existence is. So, so yeah, uh, I just wanted to say like, that was just an analogy. I'm not attributing to them a trope theoretic account. Yeah. I just wanted to say that because again, like I said, uh, the, the wrath of the internet Thomists will shh pour forth upon you they might say uh, hexaity like but but if, if they're telling oh i listened to your i listened to that one i listened to that discussion you had with uh, uh ward uh, and they talked about hecate and uh hexaity um, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> that's so good that's funny you listen to that one. yeah um yeah that's so good man um well dude i i appreciate the book i haven't i haven't like i told you earlier like i it's so good and I was like, I could force myself through this, but I, I didn't want to do it. Um, so I, I did give it a good analytic skim. And we have talked about this and stuff too, but I'm really excited to like go back and actually just give it the old like legit read. Um, I'm, I'm very excited that the book, the soft cover is not, not like super duper expensive. Um, for some people, they might be like, yeah, that's expensive. But like if you're used to buying academic books, then that is not expensive. Um, so I, I encourage everyone to grab that book for, for whatever reason, like there's a bunch of reasons you should grab that book, but it's going to be dependent on you. If you're a classical theist, you need to, this can help you think through your position. If you're a non-classical theist, like 
Why aren't you? Well, there's some good reasons right there. And like, maybe you like some of these arguments, but you don't want to get slapped by existential inertia stuff. Maybe you like existential inertia. Well, grab that and see why the arguments fail and retool them uh, for, for arguments for God's existence. Like, whatever. If you, if you want a good argument against classical theism, grab the book. If you just want to, like, good old-fashioned learn some philosophy and stuff, like, grab the book. So there's, a, there's, a, there's many, many reasons to do it. So go yeah, do it. Yeah, I should also clarify. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, I appreciate it. And, and I, I should also clarify that uh, you could check your local library or institution to see if they have uh, institutional access to Springer eBooks. So here's the thing: Springer, as I said, they primarily serve libraries, and you know that's of course both local, like local libraries, as well as university libraries. And s many libraries have purchased the Springer, they what's called Springer eBook packages. Mm -hmm. So basically, like an agreement where Springer will like give this institution or this library. And everyone on their like servers or whatever free access to the EPUB version and the PDF version of the book, as well as the ability to purchase what this is. It's a my copy. Um, it's like an individual use. Uh, it's like yeah. Anyway, it's only like uh, forty dollars. Um, and so yeah, check your local library and see if they give you access to it. If if you have their like library codes or if you're associated with an institution, go to the go to like make sure you log in through your institution or whatever, or you're on their Wi-Fi or whatever, and go to the Springer page for the book and see if you have that, because it'll give you the option to download the book onto your laptop for free because you are associated with uh, the, the library, which has bought the packages. So that's at least a way to get the ebook um, for free. Yeah. Uh, if, if you have the, uh, the institutional, uh, you know, association or affiliation. So if Purdue, for instance, Purdue has that. And so like the, the day this came out or whatever, I was like, logging into my, uh, even though I graduated, I still have like, the library codes or whatever. So I was logging into that. I'm like, oh, cool. <laughs> I get a free PDF and EPUB and everything. Awesome. And you also get access to the My Copy, which is only $40. So um, I think this, I think this is what is sold on Amazon for 56. It says it's the soft cover. Um, and this is, I think, what the soft cover is supposed to look like. Maybe this isn't here. So I think they might be selling the My Copy on Amazon. I don't know. That's, that's $56 on Amazon. Yeah. But if you have an institutional subscription or whatever, that allows you to get access to it, you can get it for just forty dollars. So yeah, um, it's at least sixteen dollars less. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Well, Joe, okay, two more two more questions before I let you go here. One is um, a lot of people are interested in in like uh, what you're going to be doing and stuff. Uh, I, I I usually don't like to date my episodes, but we've talked about so much evergreen stuff already that it's fine. Uh, do you do you think you'll carry on with existential inertia and this kind of type of argument like? Are, would, would you like to do that in a in a PhD program or is this like the culmination and now you're ready to move on to, to a different topic? That's a very good question. I honestly don't quite know yet. Uh, so this is kind of my culmination, uh, not my culmination of my investigation into like classical theism sure. because like there are so many papers that I've published on classical theism that don't show up in here. Like we only investigate, I think, like two or so arguments against classical theism. Well, actually, it's a little bit more because two or so families, I should say, of arguments against classical theism here. One is from changing divine knowledge, and another one is from abstract objects. Yeah. Let me give a bunch of different considerations from abstract objects. As people who have followed my work know, I've published lots of other papers on challenges for classical theism. I published on modal collapse and the fruitful death of it, but also, you know, it's fruitful because it spawns new different arguments, and I've developed those in different papers of mine. Yeah. Uh, so We did a podcast episode as well, folks, so go find that. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so... Yeah, I mean, it, this isn't like the culmination of my stuff on classical theism, but like, 
I think this is sort of like the end point of my stuff on classical theism. I don't know if it's the exact end, but like I'm I want to get more now into like more into like metaphysics and infinity. I've got a lot of papers under review right now on like causal finitism and infinity okay. and infinity paradoxes and things like that. And I'm very excited. I've got stuff on the modality and Patrick principles and modal ontological arguments under review right now. So branching into stuff like that. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I'm branching a lot beyond classical theism. As for existential inertia, yeah, that's that's one live topic that I'm considering pursuing during my PhD program. So I just actually applied to grad schools. Uh, yeah, I just, literally just like a couple weeks ago yeah. uh, that I just finished my applications. So um, we'll we'll see what happens with that. But yeah, what am I going to write my dissertation on? I mean. I don't really know, but again, one topic is existential inertia because there are so many like new avenues that this this book opens up. Mm. I mean, like I can explore how the discreteness versus continuity of time affects the debate. Uh, I can explore in further detail. So I gave a bunch of different metaphysical accounts, and I didn't really, I didn't usually argue for or against individual accounts, but like comparing the merits of the different metaphysical yeah. accounts of existential compare inertia. Compare the like, theories, right? Yeah. Yeah. If we compare the theories, right? <laughs> so, I, um, uh, yeah. So the that's one topic. I mean, another thing is like, I'm, I'm really interested in, like I said, infinity paradoxes. So it'd be really cool to do a dissertation on infinity and things like that. So that's another idea that I have in mind. Um, those are my two main ideas yeah. for dissertations at this point. That sounds but, awesome. uh, but yeah, so it's sort of the culmination of stuff on classical theism, sort of the end of that. I say sort of, because, you know, there's still some stuff in the works on that, but yeah. Um, but yeah, not, not for existential inertia. I'm still going to be working on that. Awesome. Yeah. I, I think Ed Fazer is probably happy about that, that you're moving on. Like, yeah, finally, <laughs> finally. Uh, we'll see. And until he posts something else, and then you're back into the in the weeds with him, um, dude. I saw. I I was when I, when you first sent me this a few I don't know weeks back or whatever. I was looking through and I saw in the acknowledgments uh, a familiar name, dude. Thanks so much. I, that was insane to see my name on there. That was crazy. Yeah, well deserved. Well deserved. Yeah, you awesome. uh, inspired some good stuff in the Augustinian proof chapter, especially. So awesome, yeah, dude. we were grateful. Appreciate it. So um, last question here is, uh, it might not be in your wheelhouse, but I'm sure you, you can have some thoughts about it is like, um, could you, you think you could like program um, uh, a, like a digital Joe or like a digital, mm, would it be concrete if it's digital? Uh, could you program a, a thing with existential inertia? Because if you, if not, then perhaps, we don't live in a computer simulation. If not, perhaps we don't. Oh, oh, okay. So that's interesting. Could I program something with these? I mean, what are the metaphysics of programs? Do programs even exist? Uh -huh. Yeah, right. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's just, do they, I mean, I'm, that might depend on whether or not we, how we answer the question yeah. of like the physics of material objects. Ch so Chalm Chalmers argues that like uh, digital thing, virtual things are digital things, and digital things, it it seems like, and from his arguments, are like obviously real because there's like digital, like my account is digital with money in it, and it's like yeah, that exists. So could you make like a do virtual things? Well, let's just. Let's assume for the sake of argument that virtual things are digital things and digital things are real things. Okay. Um, could you make like a, a virtual thing with existential inertia, I guess, like in The Sims or something? I guess you could probably program that, like program it to continue existing unless 
you know, a destructive force hits it and pro I don't know. Ah, would that I program like that, be external to it and holding it in sustaining it or something? Yeah, like what's the relation between a program and the contents of it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry. So it sort of um it sort of depends on the the relation there. So I mean, again, in general, the way that you figure this out for the audience is to look at the thing in question that we're asking whether or not it inertially persists, and you ask whether or not it persists in the absence of an external sustaining cause, so a cause that's kind of outside of it, that's not a part of it, uh, as well as in the absence of like sufficiently destructive factors. So uh, if these things are sort of like functionally realized by something outside of them or external to them, and it's they're like continually, continuously functionally realized in that manner, then I'd say they, they don't inertially persist. Um, and maybe they are. I, I don't really know about the metaphysics of digital objects. So, uh, well, <laughs> but like, if they're continuously, in some sense, functionally realized by, in some manner, explanatorily dependent on, uh, ontologically dependent on for their existence, something that is disjoined from them, outside of them, then yeah, they're not going to inertially persist. But is that is like is that program? Is the coding like a part of them? Is it like the makeup, the fiber of their being, as it were? Like, we aren't programmed beings, presumably. We have like atoms as parts and things like that, right? So maybe the program to them, or whatever it is that underlies them, maybe it's like the atoms to them. Maybe it constitutes them rather than being an right. outside yeah, thing. Yeah, it could just be made of zeros and ones, no problem, because maybe my desk is made of zeros and ones, like at the fundamental level, who cares? Um, yeah, yeah. So long as it's in within them, it kind of constitutes them. But would they be like supervening on the actual like hardware or something? And and does that supervention like matter for their like, it just if it just because something like supervenes on something else, does that mean that that um that subvenient base is uh like responsible for the pers persistence of the supervening thing? Um, well, I mean, that's not in general true because, you know, supervenience is not like an explanatory yeah. dependence relation. Like you can, uh, I mean, like technically speaking, anything necessary supervenes on anything else necessary, right? Uh, mm. And in fact, anything necessary supervenes on anything, right? Because to, for A to supervene on B just means there cannot be a change in A without there being a change in B. So if there cannot be a change in A, then clearly there cannot be a change in A without there being a change in B, right? So if, if something cannot change, as is the case with necessary truths or necessary propositions or things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, that they, they would supervene on, like, literally everything. Oh, wait, wait. Oh, shoot. So, like, if the law of non-contradiction is necessary, that, it does, that doesn't seem like that would supervene on anything else. It seems like anything else would supervene on it. Well, so as I understand supervenience, right, yeah. A is going to supervene on B provided that there can be no change in A without there being a change in B. Right. So like, but if, if, if the law of non-contradiction supervenes on something else, then it's like, well, something else is the subvenient base of that. And the law of non-contradiction can't change unless that subvenient base changes. There's a change in that subvenient base. But that doesn't see, that seems like the opposite. Well, yeah. So if there cannot be a change in A, so, so let's take this formula. There cannot yeah. be a change in A. Uh, without there being a change in B. That just means that, like, necessarily, if there's a change in A, then there's a change in B. Yeah. But if A can't change, right, there's that no... antecedent that antecedent is, like, necessarily false. And whenever you have, a like, a, an implication with a necessarily false antecedent, right, the whole implication is going to be true. Yeah. So so then then everything necessary is going to be supervening on, every, on anything. Okay. 
Yeah. Okay. 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 This okay. is all just like a minor. So the the broader point is just that like supervenience is not ipso facto an explanatory dependence relation yeah. uh, or an ontological dependence relation. Uh, but, in the case of hardware and software, is it? Uh, but, maybe, maybe. Metaphysical grounding is supposed to be an explanation uh, relation, isn't that right? Yes. So, so um, if we said that if, it's grounded in the the hardware, then it would be like, okay, this might be a problem. If the hardware is external to them, yes. Yeah. So like existentialists is perfectly fine with things being grounded in other things, but it's just going to be like, if they are, if inertially persistent things are grounded in something else, it's going to have to be something intrinsic to them, something within them. So like I might be grounded in um, my parts and their arrangement, perhaps. Sure. Uh, maybe. Um, and like typical cases of grounding are in fact like constitution cases, right? So yeah. that's usual. Um, but you know, some people... Uh, yeah, so the question is, is the hardware external to whatever the things are that we're talking about? Is it kind of like external to them? Is it outside of them? Not part of them? Seems like, because it seems like it has different properties than they do. Well, my parts have different properties than me. Yeah. Okay. It depends on the metaphysics of uh, digital objects. Yeah, so, no, it's just tough. Okay, I guess as I think of it, like a digital object is like ephemeral. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it's like... But, are you, but does it... It, it's does, not made up of. Does it exist in a different way? Like, are we are you, are you opening no, up ontological no, no, no pluralism for me? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it does not exist that's in a different good. way. It just has really different properties. Okay. Uh, but but if that's the case, if it's like ephemeral, if it's thin, if it's ghostly, then it doesn't seem to be made of the hardware because yeah. that's hard. Okay. Um, and if that's the case, well, then the hardware is external to them, and so they would not inertially persist if if it's a dependence relation on the hardware, yeah. which. Yeah. Maybe it is. Maybe it probably is. Sweet. Yeah. Well, this is good. This is good helping us think through. So um, someone someone listening, maybe maybe uh, John Connor, I think that's his name, can tell us why on OnTick, uh, do you know the dude I'm talking about on Facebook where he goes in on like OnTick, on Pan, Computational, Aquinas, and, and he'll, he'll like go I in. I do know and, who you're talking about. He'll go yes. in and he'll figure it all out for us. We won't be able to understand it, but uh, if he's listening, you go and do the work. No, uh, someone else though, uh, an existential inertialist might uh, run this argument against simulation hypothesis, and that would be very, very fascinating and might give us reason to, uh, another reason to be an existential inertialist. Interesting. Yeah, well, that's a, that's the modus Ponen's way to do it. I mean, I guess you could do the modus tollens and say, therefore, existentialism is false because we're uh, we live in a, a computer simulation. Yeah. But uh, that that's an interesting thought. Um, but I mean, then then again, like the hardware and software of which we're familiar. I mean, why should we think that that's the same as what's happening? Like, if we're the if we're the programmed beings, yeah. Like, why would the relation between the hardware and software that we're aware of on our computers? Why would that be the same as what's out there, like outside of us in, in right. the the non simulated reality? So. This argument does kind of rely on us, kind of it being the same relation there. Because if it's not the same relation, then you don't automatically get a denial of existential. Yeah, but then we also now we have now we we have the question of like, well, what do we mean by simulation then? Because we have these simulations, uh, like the Sims, and so like Bostrom is like, yeah, it's just ancestor simulation, and that relation would be the same. Okay, so maybe it's not. So maybe we have reason to not go in for Bostrom's notion of simulation. But then what are we talking about? Are we are we then saying it's like a metaphor or is it an analogy? It's an or... analogical predication. Yeah, Maybe yeah. it has a univocal core. There we Maybe. go, dude. Yeah. There we go. That's, that's, that's a good point. That Full I've, circle. I've been pressing that pretty hard lately with people. Um, all right, man. Well, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for the book. It's fantastic. 
uh, I, I've loved uh, the chapters that I've read of it, and I can't wait to, to jump in more to it. Uh, everyone, go and check the link in the description. You can find the book there. And uh, I'll drop an Amazon link. So if you go through my link, uh, it helps support the podcast, but whatever. Just get your hands on the book. Um, Joe, uh, drop drop some stuff for us, like Majesty of Reason. Like Where, where can people find you? I'm, I'm sure they already know, but I always want to do it anyways. <laughs> yeah, so uh, people can... Uh, immediately subscribe and turn on the bell for my YouTube channel, Majesty of Reason, yeah. uh, and immediately become a patron. <laughs> That's right. Um, I'm, I'm just uh, somewhat getting, maybe. Yeah. Uh, maybe not. Uh, so, yeah, Majesty of Reason. I also have a blog by the same name. Uh, they could check that out if they're curious, and they can get this book if they're curious. They can uh, send me food and gifts if they want. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, send me. Uh, Send me protein bars, maybe new running shoes. Mm. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. That's, that's not what the patron money is being used for, by the way. The patron money is being used to pay off my student debt and also to help me through grad school. And I'm using that that education in turn to help people on the internet. So it's, yeah, full circle. Yeah, that's huge. Um, well, uh, awesome, folks. Uh, I will drop the link again to uh, all Joe's stuff. That's going to have to do it for now. That was enough. That was good. My brain's on fire. Um, this has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.